Welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 26 of Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is Strange Sound with Joe. Joe is the only member of Strange Sound. Joe is... (laughs) Joe is me. (laughs) Woe is me. Joe is me. Joe is... (laughs) Really the only person involved in this podcast is if you couldn't tell. I'm the engineer... I'm the speaker, I am the writer, I am the producer, I am the guy who posted on the internets, I am the guy who um, edits the files because I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not the best speaker in the world, so I have to edit my uh, have to edit my speech a little bit to make it a little less hesitant, even though a lot of the hesitation comes through even so. Um, and I also have to adjust the levels once in a while because they get a little bit low. And here I go. I'm bringing the levels up a little bit here. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me out there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hello. Great. Anyway, glad to be with you. Well, this has been a week. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, actually, (laughs) for the books, um, on just about every front, the political front, certainly the Republican National Convention, which was a tremendous shit show, what I saw of it, obviously, I didn't watch the whole thing. Um, uh, a bit too demoralized to do that, I didn't want to take the time to sort of stay up and watch the whole grisly spectacle, I saw highlights of it, um, heard bits of... Trump's horrible speech written by the hack, Steve Miller, who is perhaps, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, the worst speechwriter ever to reach his level. Ever. Politics completely aside, just set aside for a moment that the kid's a Nazi. He's a terrible speechwriter. He's a hack. Anyway. Um, I've already ripped him a new asshole and he deserves at least three. Um, (laughs) he is himself an asshole. You can take that to the bank. Um, so yeah, I didn't really see very much of it at all. I saw, um, Charlie Kirk's opening remarks, which was weird. Um, (laughs) Trump, the bodyguard of Western civilization, (laughs) which of course, Western civilization for that read white people. Um, yeah, it's you know I could sort of see that. I don't know why they consider it something good, but there you go. The most interesting part I found about it was that they, <laughs> the scare talk that they engaged in about um, Biden being a Trojan horse for the left, the radical left, and the socialists. I'm sitting there thinking, God, that sounds wonderful. You really think so? God, I hope so. I hope they're right. Jeez. 
from your lips to God's ears. Or lack of God, because I'm a godless socialist. Yeah, uh, that that's always comes off as kind of wishful thinking to me. <laughs> I only wish that it were true. I really do. I mean, I, I think, obviously, I'm going to vote for Biden, Harris, not because I believe in them particularly, but because I would rather have them on the other side than Trump on the other side. Because Trump is, you know, Trump and the Republicans are just, they've, they've just gone completely off the deep end. That entire party has gone off the deep end. The Democrats are kind of like what the Republicans used to be. So, you know, I'd just, I'd, I'd sooner fight them than fight the Republicans. And I don't know. If you really want to go into detail on this, I would, I would listen to uh, Michael Moore's podcast, um, Rumble, where he, does a pretty good rundown um, of what his position is, and it's it's similar to mine. Um, I think he, he gets a lot more worked up than I do, and he's a much better broadcaster than I am, so <laughs> I can't really put it across as well, but I, I have to say, I, his most recent episode I found very little to disagree with him on. Um, that it's really up to the people. It's not up to the politicians. Um, when people get up and stand on their hind legs, um, politicians move because they have to. Um, and it, it, it works. It does work, but we all have to do something about it. We have to make our voices heard. So anyway, before I get too far down that rabbit hole, there we have it. So, yeah, the uh, Republican National Convention, strange. And, of course, um, questionable legal ground, um, them using the White House and all that. But, again, I'm not going to get into that in any detail. You know, they're obviously willing to flaunt the law. They don't care. You know, what are you going to do? Sue them? You know, they'll drag it out in the courts. They know they can just run the clock out on anything they do that's considered illegal or that is questionable in the very least. Anything that's challenged, they'll they'll just stonewall it and run out the clock. That's what they do. So the only way to get rid of them is to vote them out of office. And that's what we need to do. Um, but I've been over that ground. That isn't really what I wanted to talk about this week. I mean, obviously, we, we still have the COVID crisis upon us, even though the Republicans are um, denying that it exists and acting like it's, it's all over. And we had, we had the glorious spectacle of Larry Kudlow, uh, three sheets to the wind, talking about uh, the COVID crisis in the past tense. And, <laughs> and just like, they were, they were practically taking a victory lap. And of course the large gathering in front of Trump's um, acceptance speech where practically no one was wearing masks and people were sitting right cheek by jowl with one another. And it was uh, quite a spectacle, quite a spectacle, quite a demonstration of, you know, irresponsibility and dickishness, but we expect that from them, right? So anyway, COVID marches on. I thought what was particularly poignant, and this would be the last thing I say about 
the conventions at this point is <laughs> um, someone had said that as many people had died of COVID in that one day as were seated in front of Trump for his speech. And there's something really sobering about that because I think when we talk in terms of these thousands of people dying of COVID, it's, it becomes an abstraction after a while. I found this to be true during the Iraq war, and I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before. I think the human cost of the Iraq war, at least in terms of American lives lost, and I don't think anyone has tried to really substantiate um, the number of Iraqi lives lost, which is much greater. But in terms of American lives lost, I think the thing that um, really hit home with me most was when early on in the war, the, um, this traveling um, exhibition came to Utica, and uh, it was it was a um, display of of uh, imitation sort of gravestones, like cardboard gravestones, that they would set up in a field to represent all of the Americans who had died. And at that point, there was about five hundred, and even a number is relatively small as 500 is kind of an abstraction to most people. But when you see those 500 gravestones, um, there's just something about it that strikes you. Right. And of course, naturally, um, before long, um, that increased tenfold. So I'll always sort of have that concrete image in my mind of the 500, you know, cardboard, gravestones uh, representing the American lives that had been lost up to that point and how that that was really just 10% of the number of Americans killed in the Iraq war for absolutely no reason. And that's uh, heartbreaking and infuriating at the same time. And again, uh, just looking at that audience, listening to Trump and thinking, yes, that's the same number of people as died that one day because of COVID, because of Trump. People should call it the Trump virus. He wants to call it the China virus. We should call it the Trump virus. Because the reason why so many people are dead is because of his incompetence. And the fact that, you know, um, they did what they said they were going to do. They wanted to deconstruct the administrative state, and they did that, and this is the result. I mean, that was their stated objective. They stated it publicly. Um, Bannon, jailbird Bannon there said it. And uh, that was right after the election, if I remember correctly. Anyway, that wasn't what I was going to talk about today. What am I going to talk about? Well... I listened to uh, a podcast called uh, Nice White Parents. Over the last couple of weeks, um, I, you know, I still have an iPod, a little iPod Nano. <laughs> it's well over a decade old, and uh, it's still going. Um, and I still download podcasts to uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever, and... Uh, Load it onto that little thing, that little postage stamp of a player, 
and carry it around with me and listen to it. And uh, one of the podcasts that uh, I downloaded onto that little microscopic player was uh, Nice White Parents, which is a uh, New York Times podcast production um, using a lot of the same people. It was it was like a serial podcast. They, the New York Times owns serial. Um, and so it had um, some correspondence from This American Life and a Jeffy Walt. Uh, Sarah Koenig, I think, was one of the producers. And it was, it was well made. This is a relatively uninformed opinion. I'm not a parent. I'm not a teacher. Um, I'm not an education expert. But based on my understanding of some of the issues involved, I thought it was a pretty good deep dive into a specific school and a specific district and what happened over the decades with regard to integration um, and the efforts various to um, desegregate the schools in this one district in New York. And I won't go into detail about it because you can listen to it. I'll put a link to it on the um, in the podcast notes. But Nice White Parents is essentially the story is that the extent to which integration was attempted um, at this school and in this school district and by implication in the broader sort of education world um the extent to which it was tried was driven by white parents and that white parents called the shots and they were basically the only people that the district would listen to um and so there were various attempts to come up with an integrated school the school that uh they were looking at in nice white parents was um a school that was actually built essentially on the borderline between uh, white neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color specifically because the white parents wanted an integrated school this is in the wake of brown v board of education in the 1950s and you know uh, they go through a, a, the long history and a lot of the details of what happened at various points and you know white parents sort of advocating for this thing and then pulling back and not sending their children there and insisting on separate accommodations for their children and gifted programs and schools within schools and then finally charter schools there is a success academy their depiction of success academy um and i i, I don't mean that in the sense of them them framing it in a certain way um just some of the recordings that they played of class in success academy both the sort of more controversial snippets of tape and the and the more just you know fly on the wall um listening to what happens in a success academy classroom uh that was really disturbing to me <laughs> as someone again i'm not an education expert but this sounds like brainwashing to me i mean it seems like kids in some kind of stalinist school you know where they're you know they're being they're having stuff drilled into them by rote 
and being directed down to the down to the second every movement is directed and and everything is sort of pointed towards testing and everything is regimented and people are wearing uniforms and they're walking in perfect you know alignment and they when they say you know get into the circle in the middle of the classroom then you you have like a count of 5 to get there and if you don't get there in time you get 10 demerits or whatever um it's really I found that really disturbing, and obviously they they played at some point. They played a recording that had sort of made made the rounds on social media at some point, where a teacher was having a meltdown at somebody uh, who wasn't getting a problem right. And uh, <laughs> frankly, that reminded me of my own experience in uh, New Hartford schools, um, a math teacher that I had. Um, and again, it wasn't Success Academy. It was back in the day. It was just public school. And it was a teacher being a tremendous dick and humiliating me in a classroom just like she had humiliated other people in the same classroom. Uh, So I didn't feel singled out, but it was like, it was very much like that. I mean, to me, it sounds like, it sounds harsh to most people's ears, but to me, it's like, well, that was what school was like. If you had a certain kind of teacher. Yeah, and those teachers existed. (laughs) And they were, you know, Pretty thick on the ground. Um, but, you know, not to get into that too much. I mean, what what they were talking about in this entire podcast was it was really, I found it really interesting and, and sort of compelling to listen to. But what kept coming up for me again and again is, yes, it's the fact that white parents um, really drove the agenda and what white parents thought and what white parents wanted for their kids um, was really the only thing that the uh, Board of Education was concerned with. And essentially at the end, not that, I mean, spoiler alert, (laughs) that the one effort uh, towards integration that turned out to be relatively successful was the last one that that she reported on, which was implemented, I think in 2018, 2019, in which, in which the white, the group of white parents this time around, um, sort of acted against their own interests in a sense, their own narrow interests and, um, advocated for a kind of lottery system so that there was a good chance that there that their kids wouldn't be placed in what was considered to be the best schools because there were a certain number of middle schools that were considered the good ones and the rest of them were trash, right? And you didn't want your kids to go to the trash schools. But, you know, prior to that, it was admission to those better schools was based on merit. And merit is uh, is to a large extent racially determined, <laughs> It just is. I'm not going to go into the details, but I mean, look it up. <laughs> take a look at it. When you take a close look, you realize uh, it correlates very closely with with race and with class. So I think the the point in the podcast, and there were five episodes, and it was made very clearly, I think, and, and very cogently that, yeah, it was really, a, it's, it's a kind of a zero-sum question, you know, the extent to which 
white parents are willing to sort of give up their advantage and their a certain amount of their privilege to allow other people to sort of, you know, non-white parents and families and kids to sort of benefit from some of the resources available, some of the limited resources available. That's that's true, uh, you know, and they have the greatest influence. The white parents have the greatest influence. And th- so they drive the agenda. Uh, I think what it didn't get into, and I'm not surprised that it didn't because it's narrowly focused on schools, is that this is essentially a reflection of white privilege in the broader society. Right? Think about it. Why are there crappy schools? Why are there under-resourced, overcrowded, poorly maintained schools? It's obvious, right? It's because schools are mostly funded through local property taxes. And in poor neighborhoods, there's less money. (laughs) Right? There's fewer resources. The district, the city, allocates less money than is needed to make these schools work. And so it becomes this, again, it's like, a, it is a lottery, essentially. You you have what are called failing schools, but they're really just under-resourced and overcrowded and poorly maintained because we're not doing the proper investment. We're not making the proper investment in public education that we should be doing. You know, instead of shoveling billion into the Pentagon every year, we might want to consider putting a little bit of that money into schools. This isn't just a problem in New York, New York City. I mean, I've known teachers working in Syracuse who, you know, were faced with just an impossible position, you know, in schools that were literally falling apart, that had no supplies, that had no resources, that didn't even, in some cases, you know, lacked running water. (laughs) I mean, it's just, just a disaster. And they were expected to like instruct students and fulfill several different roles because of not enough teachers being available. You know, no school librarian, no school nurse, broken windows, just a mess right? Uh, This is the result of inequality and just the broader context of white privilege that goes far beyond the schools. So, I mean, it isn't just a question of schools. The reason why efforts to desegregate schools and integrate schools and make all schools, um, make all children equal (laughs) <laughs> give all children equal access to the benefits of education. The reason why these things frequently fail is because there's inequality in the in the, the communities in which the schools um, exist. Right? They reflect that same inequality. I mean, I saw this, you know, as a kid. I grew up in on the outskirts of the city of Utica. Uh, I spent a number of years. Um, my first three years in school were at a small elementary school, well, relatively small elementary school in North Utica, which was 
the suburb of Utica, which was a semi-integrated school. I mean, there was really the only integration it had was the fact that it was across the street from um, municipal housing. And a lot of the kids that lived in the municipal housing um, were were children of color, um, black kids and um, Hispanic kids, and uh, they attended school there as well. Um, and, you know, back then school was, you know, whatever neighborhood you lived in, you went to that school that served that neighborhood, that served that community. There wasn't like school choice. There wasn't like a lottery system. I'm going to go to a magnet school or something like that. You just went to the school that was available to you. And that was it. If you lived in a certain neighborhood, you know, you would go to school X. If you lived in another neighborhood, you'd go to school Y. Period. And, you know, there's people talk like that's some kind of tyranny, but it isn't. You know, you're locked into failing schools. Well, the reason why they're failing is because they're underinvested in. No one should have to go to um, a poorly resourced school. And the school I went to um, for those first three years in, in the city of Utica was poorly resourced. I mean, yes, we had books. Uh, but the lunchroom was essentially an empty hall. They didn't make hot meals. They didn't serve any meals. They sold subsidized milk for, I think, two cents, a half pint curtain, and that was it. Kids would bring their bag lunch and they would spend two cents on subsidized milk, and that was their nutrition. Um, and that was a relatively, that was like a working class um, part of the community. It was semi-suburban, pretty much a suburb of Utica. Uh, the inner city um, schools were probably a great deal less resourced. I didn't go to any of them, but I, I can, I've heard tell of what they were like. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, when I was in third grade, my parents moved to New Hartford, which is a more affluent suburb. They moved into the, essentially the outskirts of that city or that town rather, I should say, um, kind of a country road. And I went to New Hartford, public schools, and I was astonished at how much better resource they were. Um, you know, they had buses. Um, in North Utica, we didn't have buses. We walked to school. Um, New Hartford had buses. They had a subsidized lunch program, hot lunch for 30 cents. Um, they had books. They had supplies. They had, you know, pretty much everything you needed. Um, and it wasn't, you know, compared to Nowadays, uh, wealthy school districts nowadays, like, for instance, New Hartford, <laughs> nowadays, it probably didn't, wouldn't seem like very much to someone with um, uh, today's POV, um, but it was the difference between that and even the relatively suburban Utica district that I, that I started school at was like night and day. And, you know, these were wealthier kids. Now, now, there were a lot of working class kids in New Hartford as well, but it was it was essentially like apartheid, right? I mean, it was <laughs> in the sense that, you know, it was separate but unequal. I mean, there were 
the poorest people in New Hartford were like the more well-off people in North Utica, right? Um, Working class people. And, you know, in an era when you could support a family on a working class income. But there were also in New Hartford, you had doctors, lawyers, um, you name it. Business owners, that sort of thing. And so, you know, what's my point? I guess my larger point is simply that (laughs) I can understand why we need to find answers to the question of educational opportunity inequality, you know, lack of opportunity for black and brown students. Um, It's a really important issue, but it's also a reflection of the inequality in society. And we, in, in order to really fundamentally fix the education system, we need to fix the broader social um, problems as well. If you're a white person and you're, you know, living in a neighborhood and you, you know, look to your left and you look to your right and there are no people of color in your neighborhood, if when you, when you go to work, you know, you look around the office and you're seeing just other white faces. Um, when you, you know, go to the shop or, you know, go to the auto mechanic or go to the car dealership or whatever, um, and you're mostly seeing other white people, then it shouldn't be any surprise that when you go to, when your kid goes to school, they're going to be surrounded by other white people. Um, <laughs> the fact that we don't have more integration in housing, in the workplace, um, in other areas of American culture, the fact that we are um, in many ways a de facto segregated society um, is reflected in our schools and will continue to be reflected in our schools because that's really the basis of white privilege, right? It's the fact that You know, we get all the opportunity, we get all the good jobs, we get the good educations, you know, we get the free pass, (laughs) we get the mulligan from the police, you know, the police see us walking around with a gun, you know, we get a second chance, right? If the police see a person of color walking around with a gun, they get a bullet between the eyes or in the back maybe seven shots in the back, right? You don't even need a gun, right? You just got to have the wrong skin color and you become a target. Whereas if you're white, well, no, they're not even looking at you. It's reflected in every aspect of society. And the only way you're going to fix the schools, um, the only enduring way and just way that you can fix the schools for the long term is by making society more integrated and expanding opportunity. And that means white people giving up some of their privilege. That means resources being allocated to people other than just white people. And that's not good news for you, Jeff Bezos. I know you just... I know you just became a 200 billionaire. (laughs) You may have to give up some of that money, man. 
We're going to have to shake you upside down. It's uh, imaginary money anyway, right? Does he go to the can he like go to the bank and say I want all 200 billion of my dollars, please? Just put them in a stack. I want I want them in ones and fives. Probably not, right? It's all invested. No, I mean, you know, the thing that's the thing that's somewhat valuable about this podcast, um, Nice White Parents, is that it does show essentially beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that this is really just a question of white privilege and the extent to which white people are willing to give up the advantages, you know, that they take for granted that are bestowed upon them and their children by virtue of the fact that they are white and they are privileged and they have the resources. And so politicians listen to them. School boards or school um, administrations listen to them because they're the important people. How do you fix that? That's that you start getting into um, revolutionary territory, right? I don't mean, you know, violent overthrow of the government. I mean, you know, really taking steps to broaden opportunity and to give people, give up some of our advantage as white people. Find a way to be more equitable. It's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, white people don't like being told what to do. Right? Listen to them whine about wearing masks. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, we're seeing it before our very eyes right now. Um, So where do we go from here? I don't know. I'm not sure what the first step is. I'm the wrong person to ask probably. But the movement for black lives um, and the broader movement for social justice and racial justice is probably a good lead to follow because quite honestly, these problems are not going to go away by themselves. And if we get another four years of Donald Trump, it's just going to mean more entrenchment, you know, more building up barriers and encouraging white people to hang on to their privilege and to sort of wall themselves off from the growing population of non-white people. And seeing that as a threat. That's essentially what the Trumpian mission is, and more broadly the um, Republican sort of conservative movement is all about. It's encouraging people to see um, non-white people as a threat. I mean, why does Matt Gates stand up there in front of that empty room, that big empty hall that they were speaking in front of at the RNC, and say the Democrats want to put MS-13 into the house next door? Seriously, what's he talking about? The Trump administration is speaking to this directly. They are speaking directly to white people. When Trump says they're trying to kill the suburbs, they're trying to make it so that you have low-income housing 
in your nice white neighborhood. He doesn't say white. And he, you know, when he's challenged about it, he's claiming that he's also talking to colored people. Right? But but it's you know what he's talking about. He's saying it. And people like Matt Gates are saying it when they say MS thirteen is gonna move in next door to you, they mean somebody of color. They want you to look at that house that's it's been bought by a Latinx family and think my God, it's MS-13. Be afraid of them and hate them. That's what they want you to do. That's how they want you to think of people of color. They're all part of MS-13. They're all rioters. That's what they want you to think. If you're white, that's what they want you to think. Oldest trick in the book. They want you to keep your neighborhoods white. They want you to keep your workplace white and they want you to keep your schools white. That's their gambit. And until we challenge that system of privilege, uh, nothing fundamentally is going to change. You've heard it elsewhere and I'm I'm just echoing what other people have said, but it's obvious, right? I'm telling you from the standpoint of someone who has benefited from white privilege all of my life and I know I have. I absolutely know I have. I can see where it helped me at every turn. (laughs) And I'm telling you, until that changes, we're not getting anywhere. Right? And it's up to white people like me. And if you're listening to this and you're white and you're like me, it's up to you. Right? It's up to you to do something about it. Uh, Yeah. Give that podcast a listen. I, I think it's worth listening to. But I think you'll see what I mean. You know, it's 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 kind of like looking at the effects of a problem rather than the problem itself. And I don't, I'm not saying that as a slam. I think they did a really good job. I just don't. I, I don't think that's the core of the problem. I think it's I think it's a reflection of what the actual underlying problem is. And that's white privilege. Anyway, that's all I have to say about it. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a voicemail at our site, um, our strange sound site on anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm slash strange sound. All one word. Just go there. Um, you can leave a one minute voicemail. There are also links to our social media platforms. We're on Facebook. Um, if you go to um, Twitter, you can follow us or reach out to us at Strange Sound Pod. You can also go to big-green.net and click on the podcast tab and that will take you to our podcast properties. That's big-green.net. Um, it will take you to our podcast page and there you'll find links and shows. Um, again, I said, as I said before, this is episode 26. There's 25 other episodes uh, I'm going to do a few more of these <laughs> and we'll see where it goes. But, uh, for the time being, thanks for listening. Um, by all means, reach out. If you send me a comment, I will play it on the podcast. I will try to respond to it in some kind of intelligent manner. Um, you know, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me why. Love to hear from you. Anyway, 
Take good care. We'll talk to you next time.